it's Brandi Taylor. Welcome to the Business Beauty Network Podcast, where business meets beauty. It's not just lipstick, it's business. We will share thought-provoking conversations with business and beauty professionals. Our goal is to empower, motivate, and inspire you to take your business to the next level. Hey, it's Brandi Taylor, the business coach for beauty professionals. I help beauty pros amplify their business and take more action. I am super excited to share the Beauty Pro Mastermind with you, a group for serious beauty pros who want to find ways to continue to thrive in their business, a safe place for support, accountability, and education. This group is for beauty professionals who are ready for change in their business, understanding that commitment is required to achieve your goals. You know you need to make a move, but you're unclear and need an extra push. My mission is to empower beauty professionals and equip them to achieve their goals, bringing beauty and business together through support, education, and business resources. Register today for the Beauty Pro Mastermind at IamBrandyTaylor.com and just click on Beauty Pro Mastermind. I will also include the details in the show notes. Hey, welcome to the podcast. This is the last episode of 2020. Can you believe it? It's already the end of the year. We only have a few days left to this year. I thought it would be a great chance to really share some of the episodes that were like my top listened to episodes in 2020. So I had narrowed it down to the top five that had the highest listens. What was interesting about these particular episodes is that they were some of my favorite interviews. I was really glad to see that some of the interviews that I really enjoyed doing this year were amongst the top five. So I think I'm just going to share about like seven to 10 minutes clips from each interview and I will have links in the show notes where you can go listen to the whole episode if you didn't get a chance to hear it. I'm going to share um, a little bit about each one of them with you right now and then we'll go right into the episodes. The first episode, which was the top, the number one, it was a top listen to episode of 2020 is the one I did with Angie D. Batista. I really enjoyed um, her interview. She's a makeup artist from Toronto. I love Angie because, uh, check her out on YouTube if you're not familiar with her, but I love her because she really educates on what a makeup artist really needs to know. I feel like a lot of times... When you're watching YouTube University, which YouTube is great, you know, we've all watched, I still love to watch makeup tutorials, right? But, you know, YouTube can become a confusing place when you have a lot of influencers who are doing their own makeup and they're giving their makeup um, information from their perspective, which is okay and it's great. But... When you have a real makeup artist, they know what you really need to have in your kit and how you really sanitize your kit and how you really build it and what it really takes to do a job properly and understanding color theory, understanding sanitation, all of these things. These are the things that Angie talks about, the business side of it. And so to me, she's like the real makeup artist. So if you really want to be educated on how to really run a makeup artistry business, then you watch her videos. And if you want to be entertained, then I feel like you can watch the influencers. So Angie is the first one, um, and in her clip, she's just really talking about how she got into it, how she really discovered her passion in makeup. This one is a great one, so that's the first one we're going to share, and then um, I'll introduce each one individually after. 
I want to encourage you to share this episode with any beauty professional or any beauty brand professional that you know. And if you're not already subscribed to the podcast, please subscribe. Also, consider partnering with us. You can partner for as low as $4.99 a month to keep the podcast going. And so I just encourage you to do so and email me at info at businessbeautynetwork.com for any suggestions or even DM me. Follow me on Instagram at I am Brandy Taylor. I respond back. DM me. Let me know. Share episodes that you're loving. If there's any information that you would like for me to share or any people that you would like for me to have on, if I can possibly get them on, I'll definitely try to do that. So this is your podcast. I want to make sure that you're getting the information that you want to hear. Here's our first one by Angie D. Padista. And she's, I think her name of the podcast was A Day in the Life of a Professional Makeup Artist. Check it out. And then I have a few more for you. And I'll be introducing them shortly. Into music videos as a kid. And of course, you know, if you're of a certain age, one of my favorite music videos, of course, Thriller. Thriller. I knew you, you were going to say Thriller. Yeah. yeah. I knew you were so, going to say that. I was obsessed when I was a kid. So, uh, but it just, you know, when I started, I, I kind of stumbled into this profession. It's not something I did knowing that it could be a career. It was something that um, I started in the drugstore at a beauty counter, and it was something that I just liked to do. I kind of fell into it naturally. I was very artistic as a kid, so everything made sense to me. Colors, uh, texture, mixing, working with people I was fine with. So I fell into it, and as you know, time passes and you start freelancing and getting clients and meeting people, you kind of just go with the flow. And the flow for me was just regular makeup applications. I had always done Halloweens here and there. I had done um, a little, I think I did um, a really short course on special effects because I knew I needed to just do smaller effects on commercials and things like that. But I never took it full on because that's just not, that wasn't my path when, when I first kind of got into it. Understand. Understood. So you're in, um, you are a makeup artist yep. in Toronto and you, you kind of already li- led into that a little bit, but, um, so you didn't, this isn't something you always wanted to do. Like what career path did you think you would take? I didn't have a plan at all. You know, I just knew, um, I wanted to work. I loved working. I wanted to make my own money. So I got a job when I was like 15 turning 16 because that here that's the that's the age where you can start working. And um, my mom was in retail management. So I got a job kind of through her. I worked a couple days as a cashier and like a stock person. And I was looking at these uh, women who are working in the cosmetic section. And I was like, Oh, my God, they're beautiful. They smell nice. Their hair looks so good. I just like was so fascinated by these women. And I was really just into makeup, I was kind of drawn to it. And I just did it as a way to have a part time job that I actually enjoyed doing because I knew I had to work, I wanted to go to university, pay for school, didn't want to take out a loan. So I was just kind of in this hustling mentality very young. Um, I I just wanted to find something that I could do because I knew I was going to have to work quite a lot to pay for school and other expenses. So I got into it. Um, I just, it was literally one of those things where it starts going and going and going and I was in school and then I went to university because that's, you know, the path that you go on. I am have myself and my brother, I'm the oldest of the two of us. And so my parents were like, you know, you're going to go to university, get your degree, and then you can do whatever you want. 
after that, but I just didn't have, there was nothing I was like drawn to. Like I wasn't going into school being like, I'm going to be a teacher. I'm going to be a nurse. I'm going to be, I didn't have that. I was just kind of all over the place. And looking back now, I realize it's because I was more creative and more independent. I didn't really have an idea of how I learned what I enjoy at that young age. And there was no social media really. Mm -hmm. You know, this is like the mid nineties. So I graduated 99, 2000 ish. There's no Instagram telling you, you can be a makeup artist. You can do special effects. You can be uh, an influencer. You can do all, there was none of that at the time. Like we didn't even have, I don't even think we had a computer in our house until I was like in my twenties. So I had no idea uh, that any of this existed. So I didn't have plans to be anything specific. I was just kind of going with the flow. Okay. Well, how did you, how were you introduced to makeup? I know you were working at the counters mm -hmm. and everything and in retail. Is that how you started applying makeup to other people? Yeah. Oh, so you weren't That's, there. Yeah. I just went for it. I was fearless. Like when I look back now, I don't even know what I was thinking. I had no idea what I was doing. I was just fearless. And I was working with a lot of people who, you know, didn't want to deal with the makeup applications and who didn't have time for it. And, you know, it was just, I kind of fell into it and it made sense to me. And I started doing makeup applications on people. And then people would come into the store and say, Hey, can you do my makeup? I'm going out on Friday. Can you do this? Can you do that? And I'm at school. There's talent shows. There's, you know, people are like, Oh, I'm going on a date. Can you help me with my makeup? Can you come over and do this? And I just kind of started that way. But it wasn't in my mind that, oh my gosh, this is, this is it. This is going to be my job. I just didn't know it was possible. You know, like my parents weren't a big fan of me maybe going to an art school and I wouldn't have, you know, brought up the idea of like, hey, can I go to makeup school? It was just a side hustle. I knew I could make money. I was making money. People were liking what I was doing. So it was just like a feel good thing that I was interested in. And that's, that's how I kind of fell into it. And then the word kind of spreads. You have people now starting to book you for weddings, starting to book you for little events here and there. I got introduced to somebody at one point that I think was maybe a producer or worked in kind of a corporate video situation. And that was my first introduction to work on a set. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. I'll, I'll try it. Like I was not prepared. I just was like so fearless, so unprepared, no clue what I was doing. And that's how it started. Sometimes that's what it takes just to try something new, step out there and just do it. You know, sometimes yeah. that's what it takes. So what would you say your specialty is? Uh, I do really well. I do really well with skin. I do a lot of skin work. I get hired for a lot of jobs um, when the skin has to look good on camera. I work with all different skin tones, all ages. I do a lot of work with quote unquote, I guess, regular people who are going on camera. So if it's a good example would be like, let's say it's a video for an insurance company and they're doing some, you know, testimonials. I get booked for a lot of those jobs because of my interpersonal skills and because of my ability to do um, good skin work for camera. Great, great. So what is your favorite part of makeup to do? I love the transformation of it, even though sometimes it's not a full on transformation, like it's not the full beat, it's not, you know, the full smoky eye, the whole thing. I love um, being able to start and finish something in one sitting. Um, and it's creative, even if it's the same makeup I do, you know, five times a week. I love having that, um, having the opportunity to create something, 
you know, each time that I work. That's probably one of the best parts of the job for me. And working with different people and going to different sets all the time. That's, that's nice too. Great, great. So you have, you are working makeup artists and you're doing makeup consistently and mm -hmm. you have a business that you've built. Um, how, what do you say that contributed to you visit, building a successful makeup artistry business? Oh, this is such a complicated answer because I think you have to look at all of the aspects of your life. And I think everything has to be aligned for you to do this as a profession. I, um, of course, have the support of my family and my husband. And that's very important, both emotionally. And it's also nice with my husband having a more normal job. The, the two of our incomes combined, you know, there is that safety net because financially this can be a huge risk when you're just starting. So there's that whole component of it. Um, you have to be patient. You have to be willing to work through, I think, years of successes and failures. And sometimes it's just being persistent and just hanging on because you'll see people come and go. And if you can maintain that business and you can keep yourself working, sometimes you just got to outlast, you know, the makeup artists that are working in your area because things get tough. Financially, things get tough. You know, things can happen where um, people can't continue supporting themselves because they're not treating it as a business. The work gets too overwhelming. There's not enough of it. It's not what people um, think it is when they get into it. So there's lots of factors where you see people come and go. And sometimes you have to just be able to ride the wave of that. I think you have to be able to see what we are doing as a business and not as a fun time on set, you know, just hanging out with your coffee cup, with your glitter water cups. Like it just doesn't go like that. There is that element of it sometimes, but you have to see it as a business and you have to have a very real understanding of the market that you're, that you're in. And I think that also relates to just seeing this as a business. So I think there's so many things that have to line up for you, your finances, your drive, um, also just your skill, right? Like if you're not good at what you do, you're not going to be able to constantly work people will not call you again if you can't do people of all skin tones all ages if you are not patient like it's just not going to work out for you so i think you know it's like you're, you're sacrificing a lot and it's every part of your life that becomes affected so you need to be prepared and willing to uh i think work through that and have all of those things effective and uh, affected and figure out uh, you know, if this is what you want. And then again, back to just treating it as a business. Like that's really what it comes down to. You have to look at your revenue. You have to look at how much you're paying for your supplies. How, what's your, you know, what's your cost of living? What are, what are your rates? Like there's just, it's so complex. And this clip is from Anthony Standerfer's interview. This was one of my favorite interviews to do. Anthony was so much fun to have on a podcast. He's so knowledgeable and just so cool to talk to. The name of this episode was Beauty Brand and Product Development. I'm going to have the link to the entire episode in the show notes. One of the things I loved about this episode, Anthony said something along the lines of like, okay, you have this awesome idea, but is it marketable and scalable? And I think oftentimes 
as beauty professionals or just people in general, entrepreneurs in general, we come up with so many great ideas, but we really have to look at the idea and say, is this something that is marketable that I could put out in a market that's going to really get a buzz and something that's scalable that I can grow and expand on. And so those are some things that we really have to look at when we're thinking about starting our own product launches. But I'll let Anthony share. So this is about seven to 10 minute clip from his interview. And here it goes. What has been the biggest lesson you've learned in your entrepreneurial journey? Because I know now you have your own marketing firm and you're helping Mm -hmm. companies, uh, helping small businesses build their own brands and things of that nature. So big moments or big lessons for me. um, There's a lot. The one that comes to mind, top of mind, particularly as it relates to a lot of smaller businesses in today's environment, is that great ideas are great ideas, but they really have to be scalable and profitable. Um, So many people say, oh my gosh, I have this, and because I work with a lot of small companies and people who are just starting out, which is what I love, um, I frequently am approached by business owners who say, yeah, I've been in business a couple years or a couple months. You know, I'm selling, and this is a hypothetical number, you know, I'm selling $1,000 or so a month. And I go, great, like you've got a really, you know, an extra $1,000 a month is great. And then I say, well, what's the gross margin on that? And sometimes that is then like a foreign term when we talk about gross margins. Then I say, well, just what's the profit on that? Um, and then we start to talk about, well, the difference between, Um, You making $1,000, but you've spent $950 to do that when you add up the cost to to make the products, the time and the cost to promote the products, you've essentially spent your month to make $50. And that's an extreme example, but it gets down to that kind of conversation when we talk about the idea that your great idea is great, but really the secret sauce in all of this is making, how do you take that idea and make it a profitable business? And then when you make it profitable, then how do you make it scalable so that you can generate more profit over time? And that's where it gets a little bit complicated for entrepreneurs. But my professional background, because I had worked for these big companies in the past, was really drilled into me that, you know, the end of the day, your, your P&L is really what determines your viability um, and whether you, you, you could be in a, in a situation where your sales aren't that great. But if your profitability is great, <laughs> then what does it matter? You're, at the end of the day, we're all making money. And that's what um, is the true mark and measure of successful beauty businesses that last over time. Yeah, I think across the board, like even when it comes to beauty services, um, just the beauty industry across the board, especially in the African-American community. I talk to right. a, a lot of people who just really don't count up the cost of operating business. They really, they, they don't know their numbers. They don't understand, you know, um, that you need to definitely, in order to even set your prices, you need to look at, you know, your cost, how to pay yourself and what is it going to cost to run this business and then, you know, and then to sustain it. And a lot of times, um, people, in our community don't look at those when it comes to like running their salons, when it comes to running their beauty brands, any of that. Why do you think that is? I think it's just, we haven't been, we haven't been taught. It's not a, it's not a lack of passion. It's not a lack of resourcefulness. It's not a lack of chutzpah and work ethic. Um, It is literally a matter of training and then the discipline that comes along after that training to say, and you make a great example because my, 
original background was a, a month's professional hairstylist um, in the marketing industry. And so I have a great love for people who provide professional services, who stand on their feet or stand and provide a physical service where it's literally them delivering, you know, the services that, that get issued. And so we know how to, 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 to make beauty happen. There's no doubt about it. But it's then the, okay, you just spent 10 hours on your feet. And yes, you generated this money from those transactions over the course of that 10 hours of the day. But now how do we take that and how do we make that more efficient? You know, how can we book more clients or book less clients and make more money? Um, and what type of stylist are you? And so over time, how much have your prices increased? I talk to a ton of stylists who are now in their, you know, 40s and 50s who still stand on their feet every day. And, you know, and they know that it's breaking their bodies down, but, you know, they were good at something early on and they generated a craft, but now it's like, well, how do I get away from this? And so when we talk about, okay, it's taking your skill set and then expanding it beyond that, you know, how can you then become an educator or how can you then take the skill sets that you have and ad generate additional sources of revenue that over time may become the escape route so that you're not physically standing on your feet you know, doing hair 10 hours a day at 55 and trying to figure out, you know, well, what are you going to do over the next 10 or 15 years when you actually want to retire and go off and do what the world tells us we should do, which <laughs> is retire and live in the, in the sunset. But you should have that, that, that golden season where you're not working as hard. And sometimes in service-based businesses without the initial intention that says, yes, you're good at this today, but you gotta be thinking about what happens in three years from now, what happens in five years from now, and what happens in 10 years from now, and what small things can you do today that are gonna impact that so that you're not working 10 years from now doing the same exact thing that you're great at, but then it's starting to wear on you as, a, as an individual or physically or mentally or whatever the capacity is that um, anything that you do over time takes on you. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think now more than ever, um, the beauty industry is starting to see that we you need to pivot. And so I talk to uh, like makeup artists, lash tech style, hairstylists all the time about, you know, not no longer can we afford to put all of our eggs in one basket. No longer can we just say, oh, I just do hair or I just do nails or I just do makeup. Like we need to, you know, make sure that we're set up, like you said, for retirement later. Like we can't do this forever or positioning ourselves to not necessarily work in our business anymore, but maybe work on our business, but not in our business. Correct. So what are some ways that you see you know, beauty professionals can pivot and market themselves and brand themselves now that we need to make a shift in the change, you know, like, like here, I don't know, like in your area, but here we're not even, the salons still are open yet. Correct. So still, because it's, it's too much. You can't do a social distance haircut, right? So it's not happening. So they're not open yet. So we need to really position ourselves when we go back, there's like PPE, there's a lot of things, but how can we start to pivot and to market ourselves, you know, in a different way so that we can be better prepared for retirement, better prepared to work on our business is not and not in our business. Correct. So I think, so it's two, I have two things to that. So this, this pandemic shut us down completely and it has lent itself to extreme resourcefulness amongst service-based businesses. Because again, if you're a hairstylist, what do you do when you can't legally go into the salon? 
Um, now, I know some folks that are, that are taking the risk and are like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing clients to the house and we're going to duke it out because they, you know, are calling and are willing to set the appointments. And I'm like, wow, okay, I don't put a judgment on that because at the end of the day, people have to financially provide for themselves. But again, it puts you in a really precarious situation where you don't even have the option to say, I can't not work right now. Um, but then I know some stylists that got real crafty with it <laughs> and crafty was, okay, I can't come to your house and do it, but we literally are going to sit on zoom and you're going to pay me to walk you through doing your own hair because I, one person that I know runs a business and he charges pretty premium prices for the, um, the styles that he does and the services that he provides. And so he knows that most of his clients are not do it yourself people. So they are not the people that want to go and do it because they will religiously come to him or some other person to get these services done. And so when put in this situation where they couldn't go anywhere, he decided that, well, guess what? I'm going to start taking Zoom appointments and I'm literally going to walk you through how to color your hair today because <laughs> I know you're due for a color treatment. So you're going to go buy your color. I'm going to walk you through it and we're going to spend an hour together do, doing that. This episode is with Dana Mott and it was one of my faves as well and one of the top listened to episodes of 2020. And it's the beauty, business and wellness chat with Dana Mott. And Dana touched on so many awesome things. I mean, we talked about like natural hair and, you know, really making your own natural hair products, you know, the esthetician business. But one of the things that really stood out for me with this interview was when she really talked about the client experience and really talked about walking in the footsteps of your client. And she talks a lot about the five senses. What do you hear? What do you smell? You touch? What do you see when you come into salon? So she really breaks it down, but I think this was a great one as well. And here it goes. I noticed that it was something that was missing in a lot of salons and spas where people get really, really good at their craft and they perfected and they're amazing. But if nobody's coming through the doors, like how is that really going to benefit anything? Um, so what I really focus on in my courses and in, in my one-on-one -on -one coaching is the business aspect of uh, beauty. Um, so I'll, I'll, I teach a lot about um, different ways to market. Um, one thing that I talk a lot about is the five senses. Like do, when people come into your salon or spa, do they get to experience all five senses? What do they smell? What do they touch? What do they hear? Because sometimes it can be simple stuff like your front desk, all they do is gossip and they're off-putting to people when they come in. You could be doing an amazing job in the back, but you don't know what's going on up front. Or it could be simple stuff like people don't know where to park right? So you're used to it because that's where you work. But how, when was the last time you walked in the footsteps of a client? Like how hard is it to book you? How hard is it to find you? Um, and some of these things, again, when we're so into our craft, we don't think about the business and the experience for other people. Um, another big thing that I teach on is social media. Um, that's another thing that Sometimes you be online and you see these salons and you see these spas and then you walk up to it and you're like, this is not what I saw online. <laughs> like, uh, showing me the same thing. I love it. Um, you're speaking when you all in my lane, Dana. Yes. I love this. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so again, it's so important that people know how you present yourself in all walks of life, right? Like make sure you're presenting yourself when people come in through the door, present yourself online. Um, and really right now, a lot of people, they're, they're moving towards convenience, right? So a lot of people, they want to just go online and book you real quick. If I got a call, you, I'm probably not going to make that appointment. Or, you know, they might 
because your um, Instagram feed looks a certain way, they're like, okay, she seemed cool. I'm gonna try her out, right? So again, a lot of these marketing pieces, you know, that, that's not what we learn. We, we just learn how to be good at what we do, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I bring into different salons and spas to just help navigate where they might be missing some of those pieces and helping them to kind of put that together. Awesome. I think this is great. I mean, this is the reason why I started my events in this platform is because a lot of times people don't understand how to operate in business. And it could just be those simple things. Like you said, you know, what people see and what they hear and how, how your appearance is and how you approach people. And I've seen people that didn't have proper etiquette on social media, you know, very almost rude and mm -hmm. almost kind of entitled, you yeah. know what I mean? Yep. And, um, and so I've, I've been, I've had people kind of come up to me rude. They may have a lot of clients. They may be very great at what they do, but their personality was very nasty and rude. And it was like, okay, I would never go to her. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people just don't understand how they actually turn people off by the simple things about what people see, the type of things you're posting on your social media. Like I see the girl, she did some, some awesome brows, but the whole time she was doing the brows on her uh, Instagram, some terrible language music was playing in the background. Yes. I was like, I don't want to get, listen to that while she's doing my brows. You know what exactly. I mean? Exactly. So I would never go to her because I wouldn't want to hear, if that's what she played while she doing brows, that's not relaxing at all. Exactly. That's not exactly. Yes. So while her work was impeccable, I would never go to her. Right. Because, <laughs> and the reality is people have options. Like uh -huh. you got to remember like, yeah, you're talented. Yeah, you're good. But so is you know, Susie Cook Q over here, you know what I mean? Like, so, so understand, like, there has to be something about you that stands out. There has to be something a little bit edgy, a little bit different that it's like, okay, yes, this is why I keep going. And that's why I always talk about that experience. It's all about the experience, right? I'm going to go the extra mile to pay a little bit more for my eyebrows if it's relaxing, if mm -hmm. it's memorable, if there's something different about your service versus the next person's service. I love it. You know, I actually was talking, I'm trying to see if I could find it. It was someone who is actually a listener of the uh, podcast and they were asking me a question, you know, like just, I was just trying to get some feedback for what people would like to hear on the podcast. And the question she posed to me was, you know, she, she's an esthetician as well. So she was trying to figure out, and I wanted to see if I can ask you this, this question. She said that I would like to know how to convince a client that my products are better for her than what she is using and also how to convince them how beneficial it is for a facial. And um, in her area, she said um, massage is uh, mainstream, but not facials. Okay. So, um, well, I, I actually told her, you know, she has to separate herself and different things like that. But what advice would you give this esthetician? Yeah, I love that. So, so I would definitely say, um, like, like you're saying, she has to separate herself. And then if they're coming for a massage, you need to incorporate a lot of that in their experience, even in the facial. So what I mean by that is, you know, that your number one priority is to get their face and their skin clear in the way it should be. 
But because you know they enjoy massage, incorporate some extra massage into your facial. That way it connects them what they already are comfortable with, used to, or enjoy. So one thing that I would do in a massage-driven uh, spa that I used to work in is I would actually do foot massages on my clients while masks were sitting on their face. And the only reason I would do that is because, again, they're coming because they enjoy massage so much. So I want even their whole facial experience to almost feel like a massage, but with my aesthetics touch. And what I found when I would do this is it would really help connect those people. And, and when they saw, because with the facials, they're going to see results. When you're using high quality products, they're going to see the results. They're going to feel their face. They're going to see that it's a difference. And even when they go home and after that glow is gone and they go back to using what they were using, they're like, man, I don't know what's been going on with my face. And they go, remember, oh yeah, I got that facial, <laughs> right? Um, so, so that would be my biggest advice incorporate some of the things that you know they already enjoy already are coming for and upgrade that experience i love it i think that is awesome i think that's some great advice yeah i think and, and um but t t tap into this as well because i know you talk about the five senses the social media and um and the market and all of that and that's something that you teach but in the beauty industry, there it's a very attractive industry. Everyone is thinks they want to get into this industry. Not everyone, but it is very. There's a lot of people to do hair. There's a lot of people to do makeup. There's a lot of people that that are estheticians, and even more so than it was when I graduated in 2007 from aesthetics. You know, like it's a it's a growing industry. So that means there's a lot of competition. You know, there's a lot like like you said, they have choices. So can you give us a couple of ways that that was a great, great advice for that esthetician, but what's a couple of ways someone in the beauty industry could stand out um, in a crowded market where there's so many people doing the same thing that you do? So again, um, I think posture is going to be very key too. Um, I don't believe in like fake it till you make it, but I do feel like it is important to have a certain posture. Um, appreciate the value that you bring to a person and respect what they're looking for. Um, people are going to gravitate to you if they know, okay, this person is confident. Like they're coming in, they know what they're doing. They're educated. Um, they want the best for me. Um, and they're looking out for me. Um, another piece to that, and this might sound kind of contradicting, but instead of looking at other people as competition, I say collaborate with them. So if there's more of us, it's more powerful, right? So maybe that person next door is also an esthetician and they're struggling to get some clients too. So partner with them, do an event together. This episode is with Jesse Hayes. We had a phenomenal conversation. I really enjoyed this one as well. The name of her episode is The Secrets to Running a Successful Beauty Business. And she is the owner of Skinforia Spa. It's in, in the Metro Detroit area. We really had just a great conversation on how she went from going to school to be an esthetician and within three years becoming a spa owner and how she worked at other spas and learned the ins and out of business. And she took some business classes to learn business finances and how to get funding and all of those things. 
but she shares some great gems. So I will have the links to the full episode in the show notes. But here goes the clip of the interview with Jesse Hayes. I know what I'm doing. So um, I wrote a list of the places that I would work and the things that I want to learn and the takeaways and the things that I didn't know. And um, I wrote out that list of where I would work, how long I would be there. And I worked at a few different spas doing different, um, you know, managerial items. I was an esthetician. So I did different, different positions. And then that's when I went ahead and said, okay, I checked everything off my list. Now it's time to do it. Wow, Jesse. So you always knew that you wanted to own your own spa. Like once you got into the beauty industry, you knew you wanted to be a spa owner and three years isn't that long of a time to go into ownership. Yeah, it wasn't a long time. I already knew about business because I grew up, my family is a family entrepreneur. So I already knew about running a business and management and some of the financials uh, with it. But yeah, I knew before I left to go to beauty school, I said, if this is what I want to do, I know I want to run it. So it wasn't going to take years and years to do it. It was just um, me making sure I knew what I was doing and making sure I'm working under somebody else. Interesting. Interesting. So tell us now, I know uh, when I connected with you, you really shared um, your story. And I know, you know, even though you have a successful spot now, there was, you know, definitely a beginning and a middle. <laughs> and sometimes we don't share the middle, but I really would like you to t- take us along your journey to getting skin for your open and everything. Oh, wow. So yeah, it was a long journey. I think the main thing um, that helped us get started was pretty much me being able to work for others and um, work in different positions to figure out how to market and how to fire and how to hire people and how to do certain training. Um, when I was in school for aesthetics, I was taking every business class you can think of. And the first step that I did was actually Build Institute. So I did Build Institute and they helped me come up with um, a business plan because I had no idea how to put together a business plan. And it helped me break down everything with Skinforia. And then they put me in connect with um, different financial institutions to help with financing. Um, and that's where I learned about Michigan Women's Forward. But at, at that time, they were Michigan Women's First. Um, so yeah, it was pretty much starting the business plan. And once I did the business plan and then being able to travel, I kept moving and switching and changing everything with the business plan and the financials. And then once I went ahead and tried to get um, financing for Skinforia, which took an extremely long time, um, it was all about trying to find the location and getting that brick and mortar and then being able to... Um, Really, that's where we found Royal Oak and the Royal Oak location. I had no clue we was going to be in Royal Oak. So once we was able to get the Royal Oak location, uh, it was all about trying to hire and find the right people. So, yeah, it, it was a lot. It was trying to find the right people. It was trying to go and deal with um, uh, construction. So it was a lot dealing with construction, which almost put us to where I almost went bankrupt because construction took much longer than what was expected. So everything that I planned and everything that we did, uh, nothing went as planned and everything took much longer than what we thought it would be. And and that's sometimes how things go in life. You know, but one thing that I see that you did that a lot of people don't do is you really studied business. So you started taking business classes. You learned how to get your plan together and your finances. So share a little bit of that with us. So. 
before getting started with Skinforia, I realized and noticed that so many people were going into business, but they were losing their businesses at the same time, or you would never hear about them after. So I wanted to figure out, okay, opening Skinforia would be easy, but it's about keeping it open and being profitable. And I said, my main thing, my number one thing is trying to learn about the financial part and the money part with everything and the business part. I don't think we took a turn um, to become profitable until I really stepped back and said, let me not just focus on being an esthetician. Let me focus on being the business owner. Because when we first started and opened, I was the esthetician, you know, even though we hired other estheticians, I was also the one answering the phones and cleaning the bathrooms and doing the social media and everything. But once I said, Hey, let me step back and do more of a CEO position and learn how to run the business. Um, and step back from taking so many clients and just being the esthetician. I feel like that's where we took off because I was able to make more strategic moves with, you know, business strategies, processes and procedures and all of that. So, yeah, it was all about the business class with Build Institute. When I set up everything with Michigan Women's um, Forward, they put me in the right um, network to take more classes. So every time I turned around, it wasn't just classes for skin. It was more business classes, numbers, projections. Um, most of my days are meetings um, to, to talk about strategies and all of that. So that started to shift maybe a year, a year and a half into the business where I said, let me learn more and do more about um, the business and, and strategic, um, how, to, how to put the right people in the right seats and doing the right stuff for Skinforia. Hmm. So you started working more so on the business and less in the business. And that was when you saw a shift in your business. Oh, immediately. Immediately. I think that first year, maybe year and a half while we were open, we were good. We were busy, um, but we weren't profitable. You know, I never took any money home. So it was like, man, we're so busy. We're getting all these people, but I'm not really making money and we're not taking skin forward to the next level. Once I stepped back and said, Jessica, you can't do everything and you need to have the right team and you need to um, shift what you're actually doing and your job duties, that's when it changed immediately. So definitely. Because think about it, I can only have so many clients. So when you're a makeup artist, an esthetician, uh, you, you do hair, you can only take so many clients. And even though I would take clients and I'm fully booked, um, I wasn't trying to think of ways to take the business to the next level. I was so busy taking clients and just trying to make it through the day. I couldn't sit back and help my staff with training and taking them to the next level. Mm -hmm. Because it's hard to scale a business when you are the everything in the business, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you can only do so much, you know, mm -hmm. so, yes, definitely. Awesome. Awesome. So what has been the biggest challenge you've had so far as a, spa owner and how have you overcome it the biggest challenge i would say is not putting emotion into my business decisions um trying to and, and see and that was a challenge for me because I'm, i was very close with my staff i am very close with my staff um i always want to feel like i'm helping people and helping take them to the next level and do things so there was always emotion into my decision making like oh you know feeling bad for people or oh let me help this person out but a lot of times um when you start to put mix emotion and, and business together <laughs> it, it can take your business for a turn for the for the worse so me having to learn how to say skinforia um Jessica, you got to think more about how you make your business decisions and not put so much emotion into it. Uh, and that's where stuff started to take a change uh, and shift for Skinforia. 
So not just saying, okay, um, let me just make this business decision because I, I want to help somebody. What's, what's the goal for and for you? And, and how is it going to help the whole team? Um, and, and making sure I got the right people, like I said, asking for you. So I think that was the hardest thing. I was always putting emotion and my feelings into every business decision that you can. You kind of got to be hard with certain stuff that you do, whether you feel bad or not about it. Um, yeah, I just think that's internal with us, where we're always trying to think and, and feel and have feelings when we're trying to make decisions. Yeah, they say it's business, not pleasure, right? Well, it's, yeah, it's not. It's not. So, of course, sometimes you got to be the bad guy, you know? Mm -hmm. So. Um, and that's just dealing with uh, vendors, contractors, employees, all of that. Yeah. So you got to be okay being the bad guy every day. Yeah. Yeah. So that's just really, it sounds like you just had to step into the leadership role and stepping into the leadership role brought about change. And that's definitely understandable. Yeah. So what would you, what advice would you give someone who was looking to open a spa right now? You know what? I think everybody wants to open up a spa, a salon. They want to open up something and feel like, hey, um, unless I have a brick and mortar, I'm not doing well unless I have it. A lot of times people make more money, you know, at home or doing an online business. So one, make sure it's something for you and that it is what you want to do and that you're not looking at what everybody else is doing on social media, thinking that they're doing so well um, because they have this brick and mortar or have a location. Uh, a lot of times you can make more money just selling the products, you know, that that's online. So make sure it's something for you to do and then work under somebody first. You know, you need to work under somebody, see all the, the good, the bad, the ins and the outs and make sure this is something that you want to do. And even if you want to do it, there's always a better way to do something. So you might have in your, your mind that you want to open a spa, but then once you start working for people, um, which I've had even employees work for me and say, okay, no, I thought I wanted to open a spa, but I don't. I want to do something else, you know. So it's all about working under somebody first, learning the ins and outs, and, and trying to get somebody on your team that um, is not a yes man, that can tell you, you know, your services and tell you things that you need to improve. This episode is with Tawana Tolliver. The name of the episode is The Cautionary Tale of Building a Beauty Brand. It's just that uh, Tawana really was very transparent in sharing the ups and the downs of starting a beauty brand and her experience. You can really learn from the awesome gems that she shared in her transparency, the story behind how she ended her beauty brand, what happened with it. So I think you're really going to really enjoy this one. I think this is our last one. But yeah, check it out. If you haven't heard the whole episode, you got to hear this one. The Cautionary Tale of Building a Beauty Brand. I will have all the links to each of these episodes in the show notes. So make sure you check that out and make sure you subscribe to the podcast. If you know anyone in the beauty industry or who can benefit from this information, definitely share it and consider supporting the podcast as well. But here is Tawana's clip. The beginning to end like in a day and literally just started doing all of this research and trying to figure this out. This is like 2003 and there was nothing. This was like the beginning of everything. Social media and I'm just like, oh, what's happening? So I ordered like my first like pail. It was like a pail of shea butter from Africa. And I had to pay all of these fees and the person that delivered it, I remember was like, what in the world is this? And just started, I bought a mixer and I'm literally like in the house, like making stuff. And the only, the only company that I had to like look at was like Carol's daughter. And she mm -hmm. was blowing up and that's when like Jada and all of them was taking over 
And I'm like, oh, you know, how does she get all of these ingredients? And I, I had no, no resource. And I just had to just find all of these resources myself. And I did, and I figured it out and started coming up with stuff and making things. I remember the first day it was like Frankenstein in my house. The first time like I made an emulsion and I was like, oh my God, look, look, look. <laughs> I started giving it to friends and they were like, oh, I like this stuff. So what was the first product you created? The first product I created was called Tropical Butter. And awesome. I, I have a sensitivity to like um, fragrance, high fragrance stuff. Like if I'm sitting on the train, somebody pull out that, uh, you know, that stuff that dairy butter and all that, you know, all that stuff that's like really like this fragrance. Oh my God, drives me nuts. Like my kids when they used to use it. And so there was nothing that I can find that had like natural, pure essential oils, which I love. And so I was like, oh, I need to make body butters with just real natural essential oils in it. So I had mixed together all of these like different scented body butters and then just used like vanilla and different kind of essential oils and, um, um, and came up with this butter that smelled so good. And I started giving it, they were like, oh my gosh, I like this girl. And I was like, no, I'm gonna turn this into a business. And there was this um, event company in New York that would ha have vendors come and, and they would do these huge shows every year called Shecky's. They're no longer around. And I was like, I'm gonna do Shecky's. I was not prepared. I barely had labels. I was making all this stuff myself. Stuff was falling out. So I was like, okay, I'm still gonna sell it. I had all my friends say, y'all meet me there and y'all gonna help me. And with customers. Must were coming. I was like, this is handmade. I was like, that's why the jaws look like this. That's why it's spilling over. I just made it. It's fresh. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I have pictures with me just like, and my friends like, yo, you are, um, you can really, you are a good salesman. I was like, this is just imagine. This was not sitting on nobody's shelf. I literally just made this girl. It's fresh, and I'm slathering on the on their body, and I'm rubbing them down. They was like, oh, I like this. So you know, that was my story. And then you know. As I started to really dive into the business side of it um, and really meet people in the industry, I joined like Cosmetic Executive Women. This was the start of like the Tory Burch Foundation and she was doing mentorship and I would go to her events and, you know, I met Bobby Brown. I was just like really getting immersed in the business side. I decided, I was like, I need to learn more. And I went to Aveda and became a licensed esthetician. I was like, no, I'm going to do this. And I did all of this alongside my corporate job. Wow. For like 10 years. And then the 10th year, I like, I'm on the cusp because like I met Bobby Brown. She started following me on Instagram and she, you know, was giving me advice. And then I woke up at the same day, the same way I woke up and was like, I'm going to start this. I woke up one morning and was like, I'm done. And my husband was like, what do you mean? I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And he was like, what do you mean? I was like, I, I don't know, but something is wrong. And it took years for me to realize that I was literally just burnt out. So be, interesting. <laughs> so be, before you get to the burnout, like share a little bit um, in between, like, was it a successful product for you? Did you have multiple products? How was the company going during this? It was, yeah, it was highly successful. I found the manufacturer after all of this research and a lot of uh, money wasted because I found one, I found one manufacturer who went out of business. And then I found another manufacturer who was great, who was a great partner, it was a small company in Texas. And she really worked with me and taught me so much about the industry and the business. And I decided 
to, although the tropical butter was my first butter, I decided not to make that one of the products that I put on my website um, because it, it was actually really expensive to make. It had a lot of butters in it. Um, and so I came up with these other body butters and one of them, which my friend called me not too long ago. She was like, I'm at Sephora and, and Rihanna sold your product. I was like, girl, no, she didn't. But I came up with this bronze butter that I named Soltress. And it was a, a body butter that was in this pretty like a bottle instead of being in a jar and it had tint in it. And this was like 2003, nobody was really doing this that I knew of. And um, that became actually my biggest seller. And it's one of the lessons that I like to teach people like the, the power of one. And I didn't know that back then. And that's why I got burnt out because I had, I ended up having like almost 10 SKUs. Mm -hmm. It was so much work. And I didn't have the confidence to quit my job, which I probably should have, because I was actually making enough money to do so. I also didn't have the uh, forethought to say to one of you need help. You know, I was still running on that strong black woman thing. And I was like, no, I can do this. Nobody's going to be able to do this better than me. Like I would have my friends come help me at events. But even mm -hmm. then, I, I, you know, I would micromanage them and they were like, girl, listen. <laughs> so you said yeah. some key things to water. I want to talk about that. So you had 10 SKUs, right? And you said that was very overwhelming. It was oh. a lot for you. So break that down because I know a lot of times, you know, I talk to people who are interested in starting product lines and they think they need to start with 10 or 15 or oh. 20 products in order to be a valid line like they don't think it would be valid they only start with one or two things when i usually recommend to do so so let's kind of talk about that a little bit about your experience with starting with so many products and what type of issues that can cause oh it's so it's it's so it's such an issue it's i talk about it all the time it one it's costly it's going to cost you more money is you're going to need more money to develop each individual product you're going to need more money for the labels for the packaging, marketing, shipping, everything. It's so much more work and so much more um, cost-effective, not cost-effective rather, it's more cost-effective to actually start with one signature product. And this is something that I did not realize at the time. And it would have saved me so much time, money, and energy if I would have just, that, that bronze butter literally could have probably made me a million dollars. I did not need all of the other. And then I got into soaps, which were also amazing. And I could have literally just sold the soaps. Like the soaps were just so phenomenal. Flying off, you know, the shelf, uh, which is my kitchen shelf rather. <laughs> and it was, you know, but it, it was a lot of work. And I was one woman. I was one, I didn't have a team. I didn't have a warehouse. I had a manufacturer. And then I, it's crazy because I, I reached a level when my manufacturer was sending shipping out to me every, every couple of weeks, but there was a level that I needed to reach for that company to actually be the shipper. So if you ordered from my site, they would ship directly. And I was, I was about to reach that level, but I, I didn't reach that level. I had to, it had to have a certain amount of um, sales for them to do that. And so they, I was in charge of the shipping, which was also like, nobody thinks about that. Like who was the sit? Of course I want sales, but honey, going to the post office, UPS, I'm like, oh my God. And then I had this again, just, I wanted to be over promise. And I was like, oh, free shipping. And 
you know, or I mean, I think I charged like $3 or $5 to ship. It was just, it was just so much. And I talk about this all the time about the power of one. And the more research I did after the fact, you know, I started to find these brands where they literally had the signature product before they even even attempted to come out with something else. And it's recently at a cosmetic executive women event, I met Sarah Happ and she's like the main, you know, she came up with that, that lip scrub. She had that lip scrub for years before she had anything else. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Do you know who I'm talking about? Yeah. Just, just like you, you uh, mentioned Bobby Brown. She started off with one lipstick. Yes, yes she did. Mm-hmm. That one lipstick. And yeah. it, people, and I know, and, and as a creative, you have, and the thing is, it wasn't that I couldn't keep formulating. I could have kept formulating, but I didn't have to introduce it. So I could have just waited to the right time to introduce all of that. And I just say all of this because, you know, at the time there was, there was not anyone, there was no me or you to help us, you know, beauty, aspiring beauty entrepreneurs navigate this industry. You know, people see beauty as almost like um, acting and singing. It seems so glamorous and they don't see the behind the scenes. Like they just see the pretty influences. They see the unboxing and all that stuff. But it is. Thanks for tuning in to the Business Beauty Network podcast. Please subscribe and support our podcast. Please share it. Share it with your friends and family. Also, connect with us. We want to hear from you. Leave us comments. Let us know what you're enjoying about the podcast. Also, email us at bbnetworkpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with me on Instagram at I am Brandy Taylor and at Exquisite Looks. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Exquisite Looks. And you can check out my website at exquisitelooks.com. I really hope to hear from you and connect with you soon. Remember that all things are possible if you only believe. Stay great.